Um, hi. Welcome uh, to ECV. If you haven't met me before, my name is Liz. I like to make awkward jokes about myself. There will be jokes, hopefully, so if you feel the inkling to laugh, you are allowed to do that during a church service. In fact, I recommend it. It helps, you know, pass the time. Uh, hey, you got it already. Um, as Mariah said, um, I am from like ECV the early years. Um, and now we're doing a spin-off in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, where we are trying to plant a church there. We are in year five, which is kind of wild. Um, and if you want to hear stories about that or hear more about what's going on, um, come to the potluck. Come buy some gifts from our young friends. Um, I will be there and love to talk to you about what's going on in Princeton. Today, we are concluding ECV's Advent series. Oh, I need a... Mm, cool. Love the technical. We got it. I will... We got it. Cool. Um, <laughs> so today we are concluding our Advent series uh, called Near and Far. And over the past few weeks here at ECV, y'all have taken a look at how the Christmas in the Christmas story, God comes near uh, to us in the birth of Jesus. And we see that in beholding Jesus, as we saw kind of played out um, up here just a few minutes ago, God is born very vulnerable and a very humble baby. And there's something that happens, though, when we encounter this Jesus, when we encounter the infant Lord of, over all creation, that changes our hearts and it radiates outward. That that is essentially, as I understand it, what y'all have been talking about over the past few weeks here at ECV. That something changes in our hearts as we engage with this Jesus and it causes us to see our neighborhoods differently, to see our families differently, and to be sent out into the world to do the things of the kingdom of God. Does that sound about right? Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so today, we are gonna continue um, in that series, and we're gonna look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, where the magi, or wise men, are sent to find the one born king over all Judea, the king of the Jews. And as they come near to Jesus, brought from a far off place, they will encounter not only a king, but an exceedingly great joy. So would you join me in a word of prayer, my friends? Yeah, so Lord, would you come near to us in this moment? Would you come near to us with all of the things that we have brought with us into this room today? With all of the things that await us on the other side? And God, would you help us just to bring those things before you and lay them at your feet? That we might behold you in the arms of your mother Mary, Lord, at your birth. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way among us. Speak to each one of our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. 
When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, just a few minutes ago, we saw all of this played out (laughs) behind me. We saw the kings come in, we saw the shepherds, we had the angels sing their song. I've been part of ECV or around ECV for like 15 years, and that is actually the first time that I have seen the No Frills pageant, and it was quite a show. And different than that um, is what I experienced in my own house growing up, which is like a little nativity set. I don't know if you have these. Slide, please. This is like a little show and tell moment. Um, But this is the one that I have currently set up in my own living room. I don't know if you had one like this growing up, um, where, like, the infant Jesus is hidden until Christmas morning, and when I was little, it was, like, the first thing you look for when you went downstairs. Ideally, I mean, you gaze the presents. Like, it's like, you know, you do a quick, like, scan, and then, like, oh, Jesus, yeah. Um, (laughs) And you get, like, all the characters are there, and this set is actually one that um, I inherited from a relative who... (laughs) like really loves dogs, so if you see down in the foreground, that's not the only dog statue that came with the set, I will tell you. And here you have like the three magi, which is typically kind of how they're represented, I think. I don't know if you can see them. My favorite is is the guy in the front who's like kneeling kind of awkwardly presenting a gift with an interesting expression on his face, shall we say. Um, But when we picture the Magi, we tend to look and see sort of these three kings. Like this is like the, like obviously the clip art version. Um, But there's like three kings, they wear crowns, that's how we know who they are. But as it turns out, that's like not exactly the historical context for the Magi. Um, That we have a little bit more that's going on behind the story that really changes the way that especially Matthew's audience would have heard it. And we'll change the way that we hear it too, I think. So I thought that we could have a couple other illustrations to have in our mind that might help us like imagine the story a little bit more. Slide. So 
This is one of the earlier representations that we know of of the Magi. It's uh, Byzantine, it's in Italy, it's a mosaic. Um, you see like, there's no crowns on their heads. They have amazing leggings, <laughs> like truly amazing. Um, like Gen Z jealous. And like they have the star and they're following. We've got another one. This is from Ethiopia. Um, I think it's, I can't remember if it's 16th or 17th century. <clears throat> but we have the three magi, the three wise men coming. Mary is holding Jesus. And then we've got, it's from an illuminated text. And then we've got one more for you. This is from India. And this is also from around the 16th or 17th century. And the reason why I wanted to include some of these images, especially ones that are not from like Western European art, is that the story of the Magi as people who are coming from the East has a great deal of importance for cultures that are like further East of ours. <laughs> so as we try to imagine the story as place ourselves in it and try to get like the layers, I thought that some of these images might be helpful to us. Because what we know about the Magi is kind of like not a ton. For Matthew's readers, first century Christians and Jewish people, like the fact that the Magi are the first people to visit Jesus when he is born in, his, in Matthew's account is like scandal. It's absolute scandal. Because the Magi were not kings they were astrologers. They were people who like, were really into dream interpretation. They um, maybe performed a little bit of magic. They were sort of like a cultural elite. Um, and they were coming from the East. So they're sort of like theologically outside. And then they're culturally and ethnically outside of the Jewish people. So they're coming from like, we think Persia. Um, and that would be modern-day Iran, just to, like, have you in your head, like, where things are um, in the world. So this would have caused some outrage from Matthew's li listeners, I think, or at least, like, confusion. Um, and you can see why, maybe over time, we were like, well, let's, like, change them to kings, like, just smoother transition, fewer questions about, like, who gets to be at the foot of of Jesus's manger and to worship him. So how did they sort of become part of the Christmas story? They were studying the stars. That's just like what they, they're astrologers. That's what they did. They probably learned from their parents um, and from their parents' parents that this was like a thing that was passed down. And they were looking for the, at the stars for a sign. And there was a common belief at the time that there would be, uh, like, the rise and fall of great kings could be read in the sky. There's some, like, if you want to nerd out on that, there's some folks in the room that you could probably talk to. Um, but they were looking to the heavens for a king. They were looking for this sign. And their wisdom, what they had grown up in, what they had studied, told them to look. But it didn't tell them where to go. Like, they had all of these tools, but they didn't know where to go with them. It needed to be revealed to them. It needed to be revealed. And they were sent a star by God so that they would come to the feet of Jesus. They needed a moment of revelation. 
In my opinion, this is not unlike our own stories, or it's at least not unlike my, my story of meeting Jesus and following him. In high school, I was doing all the right stuff, good at sports and school and had friends and all of those things, but something didn't feel quite right in my spirit. And I was looking like everywhere for an answer, man. I like looked everywhere. And one day I just thought like, the only other place I have to look is God. And so I asked God for a moment of just like, show up, please, anything. I don't know if any of you have had that moment in your lives. I've had several more since then. And what was amazing is I didn't get a star in the sky. I didn't get anything sort of like in this level of miraculous. But what I got was an invitation. It was, actually, it was not the thing that I wanted, truthfully. <laughs> but I got an invitation to a, a Christian Bible study. And I was so desperate. And I thought, well, I asked. I didn't want Christians. I wanted God. But like, here we go. And so I went, and what I encountered was the living God. And it taught me to keep asking God to reveal God's self to me, to keep asking God to show up, to train my own vision, to look to see where God might be showing up in my own life. And then it led me to start to train my vision, to start to see where God might be showing up in other people's lives. So that when I'm walking around Princeton, when I'm engaging with people who don't yet know Jesus, that there might be ways that I might see, God, how are you showing up in this person's life? And how can I witness to it? How may I point them to the star that you are sending to them to lead them to you? God tends to show up, not because I'm looking, like not because I have like the best tools at looking, but because God wants to be found. God comes near to us. That is the, this whole Christmas story, is that it's not up to me and my faith and the way that you know, I do anything like in a mediocre way. <laughs> Try to do it better, but you know that's just how it plays out. But that God comes near to me because God wants us to know who he is and the love that he has for us. Now, in this story... There are two kings. We hear two kings. There is Herod and there is Jesus. One, the Bible calls the firstborn over all creation, the prince of peace, the son of David, the shepherd of Israel, a healer, a savior, the Messiah. And the other one is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was a Roman Jewish king over Judea. And he, in this story, I don't know if you caught this, is asking basically the same question as the Magi. But he's not asking it out of respect. I think I heard someone actually chuckle when Herod asks his question. That's, it's, it's funny. It's also very scary. Because Herod is not looking to like worship Jesus or pay him respect as like another king in the region. He is looking to eliminate him. He's like, this is not good for my rule. This is not going to play out well. Matthew tells us that Herod is frightened, and he's so frightened that he seeks out counsel from the Jewish and religious, like the, the Jewish religious and legal leaders. 
which says a lot because Herod didn't have a great relationship with the Sanhedrin. They like don't like him at all. He is, after all, still involved in the subjugation of the Jewish people. Um, and he's like kind of Jewish, but not enough. It's like a whole thing. <clears throat> and he can't handle that there's a competing king, a long-awaited Messiah, born in the province that he's ruling for the people that he is trying to control. It's like his worst nightmare. And so he hatches a plan. He tries to get the Magi to spy for him so that he can find out where Jesus is and execute him. Herod is a totalitarian ruler, very comfortable with dominance through violence and fear. But he's also not really unique of the time or really to national and global leadership that we've seen in the past few years. When there are dudes in charge who feel that their power is threatened, that their little kingdom might be taken away, they create disinformation campaigns. They take over and take away access to news sources and social media. They lead with brute force. They imprison and execute dissenters. They invade neighboring countries. The list goes on and on. We see this every day as we read the news. This is what the Bible calls the wisdom of the world that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. There has been a prevailing way of doing things, and it's mostly rooted in fear and dominance. It's dog eat dog, get them before they get you, look out for number one. And it seems as though there's like something corrupted in human nature, that this is just the way that things play out no matter how hard we try sometimes to do the right thing. We see it on this like big level and then we sometimes see it sort of peak up in our own lives, in our own family networks. You're familiar with this idea, right? And then there is the way of Jesus. Lord at his birth, even as an infant, he is already giving us a picture about the sort of king that he is. And boy, is it very different than Herod. Jesus takes the wisdom of our world and flips it on its head and calls it foolish. Just imagine the scene of his birth. It's silly what we see play out. He is God, born into this stable area, of a first century Palestinian home, essentially in someone else's living room. He's surrounded by the smells of manure and urine because that's where the animals live. He's born into a very poor family. The Bible tells us that in his life, he's not really like much to look at either. He's got like nothing by worldly standards. He doesn't have prestige. He doesn't have looks. The power that he has, he doesn't use it in the way that everyone else does. It's like there's nothing like in his resume that we see that we're like, ah, oh, this is the guy. The people who receive his birth announcement, it's just like when you dig in, man, it's, it's like ridiculous. The people who receive his birth announcement are shepherds. They're uneducated. They're smelly from the fields. They're like ordinary guys. And magi, astrologers from the east, 
In other words, again, people who are ethnically, theologically, and socially way outside of the list of folks that you would expect to see kneeling in worship before the Jewish Messiah. The right people are nowhere to be seen. There's not even a hint that Jesus should be feared. He is as vulnerable as a person can be, and yet he is Lord of all, the true king of not only Judea, but over all creation. And more than that, Matthew is showing us what Jesus' kingdom will be like, what it is like, right from the very start, right from his birth. It's a party of misfits and ordinary folks and outsiders who share very little in common, except they ended up at the same place because of a revelation. God sent a sign and wants them to be there so badly so badly that he lit up the sky with a choir of angels, that he sent a star so that men in Persia who had been looking would travel for four months to come and see the infant king. And these are the people who belong in the presence of Jesus. Not because of anything that they have to bring, not because of the gifts, not because they have any utilitarian use for Jesus in his, like, strategy, but because Jesus flips the values of the world upside down and makes them look foolish and invites every single one of us to come and worship him, especially those who seem unworthy and far off. The good news of this king is that in him we are accepted and loved for who we are, that we are brought into relationship with God, that he rules in justice and peace. His kingdom is one where we are freed from the oppression of sin, healed of our wounds, placed in community, and have our hopes restored. Matthew is making it abundantly clear right from the beginning, this is who our Messiah is. Make no mistake about it. Herod rules out of fear and demands subjugation. He creates chaos and death. Jesus rules with love and invites worship. He brings life abundant and restores everything that's been broken. The Magi show up and they worship. They don't just find the house, you know, they go in. They were just looking to see if, the, if there would be a king on the other side of the star to see if everything that they had studied was like, in fact, something that was true. <laughs> but they go inside. Again, they're like foreign dignitaries. <laughs> like, look, this is like what they do. They look for kings and see, this is where they end up. You can imagine them sort of like standing outside the door like, is this the spot where we're supposed to be? They aren't even in Jerusalem. They aren't even in like a big city center. They're in Bethlehem. Like no one's in Bethlehem. And they go inside and they see Jesus in the arms of Mary. And they kneel in reverence to the great king that they know is before them. They offer Jesus some fancy gifts, um, gifts that are befitting a king, perhaps gifts that are a little strange to give um, a Palestinian baby. But they know that this is the king, that this is right that they do this, despite the very unlikely place where they find him. 
And Matthew writes that upon finding the promised king, the magi are filled with joy. This is in verse 10. As though the combination of finding Jesus, that there really is in fact a promised king on the other side of their journey, and that they were invited to participate in worship and respect of him and his kingship, of his lordship, they are bursting with joy. But Matthew's language in verse 10 is just like, it's a little more extreme than that in the original language. I hate to be that person. Um, But in verse 10, go the next guy. Go the next one. Yeah. It says in like, it's more like they were overjoyed with exceedingly great joy. Like they're like bubbling over with it, like tripping over it as they get into the room. They were thrilled to bits. They had a joy that could not be contained, a joy that beckoned them in and moved them to worship. Like it wasn't performative. They were like moved to worship. And it's almost as if their joy catapults them out the door, that they have news to share, that they have to be sent on their way. And why is this? It's because they knew that the king had come. They had been keeping an eye out and they had found him. They are sent ones, the Magi. They were sent to find Jesus, and then they were also sent back home. They don't remain beside the manger. They don't take up residence in Bethlehem or Jerusalem. As far as we know, they don't become disciples of Jesus' earthly ministry. Instead, they are given a dream, a language that they understand, and they are warned that returning the same way would be dangerous, that Herod knows that he's been betrayed, but they need to depart for home. And so just as they were sent out to find Jesus, they were sent home. And I have to think that the overjoyed with exceedingly great joy would have put a little pep in their step on the way home. The language kind of reminds me of the way that uh, the disciples sound when they're sent out by Jesus to like, tried to do the work of the kingdom and they're like I don't know if we can do that and then like some stuff happens and they're like whoa this is amazing that they experience joy and they return with stories about the things that they have seen and done and for the disciples that this meant that they were sent out again and again and again to the edges of the earth the experience of joy that the magi had was crucial to being sent back home the trek across the world and back, the only thing that could have kept them going, the only thing that could have kept me going at least, would be this experience of profound joy and revelation at meeting Jesus. We don't get to hear their buzzing stories to one another. We don't get to hear the way that they talk to their family and friends and neighbors. But if they were overjoyed with exceedingly great joy, I would gather that they told just about every single person they met. An experience with God, with the living God, draws us in very close. It invites us to peer into the manger, to see Jesus, to be captivated by him. And it almost gives us this moment of like self-forgetfulness. 
where the anxieties and insecurities of not having enough, like the world demands, or not being enough, like the world demands, are forgotten and replaced by this experience of joy. And at that moment of being brought in close to Jesus again and again, experiencing the fullness of his gaze of love upon you, upon me, and the joy that it brings, becomes the precise thing that then slingshots us out into the world where we see the needs of our neighbors, the places where the kingdom of God hasn't quite come yet, where people need more hope and more joy and more love. We see these things with an experience of joy and we get sent out. To be sent out, to be sent to the far off places, there's got to be this experience of joy. The joy of being known by God, the joy of being embraced by God, the joy of hope that God is in the midst of all things making them new. This has been my experience of finding Jesus here at ECV and in the course of my life. And my great hope is that it would be the case for you as well. So where does the Christmas season find you? Or even just like this Sunday in Advent. Like, the weeks have been hard, man. (laughs) Imagining yourself at the scene of the nativity, an assembly of misfits and ordinary folks, do you see yourself? Have you been searching the stars for a sign that God is real and it's brought you to the infant Jesus held in Mary's arms? That It's brought you here to church today. Who do you notice around you and how do you feel being in their company? Are you just arriving or are you preparing to depart having spent some time in worship at the foot of the manger? Has God revealed to you where you might be going next? Can you go up the line? One more. There we go. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as we, or prayer ministry, anyway, you guys know how to run things. (laughs) And as we move into the next um, part of our service, I I hope that you'll imagine yourselves in this story, that you'll allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. If one of these questions that's up here sticks, like it feels like, oh, there's something there, I hope that you'll take some time to ponder it, that maybe you'd even go and get some prayer. Remember that God is already here with you, that Jesus is, in fact, near. And may you be overjoyed with exceedingly great joy in the presence of God this Christmas. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to invite uh, Jesse Mangler to come up and give us some more invitations for prayer today. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts and our imaginations right now. God, that as we imagine the scene of Jesus in Mary's arms, And the Magi present, God, would you show us where we are? God, would we be met by joy in knowing you this Christmas? Amen.